0: Welcome to Beyond the Block with Brother Jones and Brother Knox centering the marginalized in Mormonism. We are joined today by Our Sisters in Christ, Channing and Elise of the Faithful Feminists, a podcast that offers approachable feminist interpretations of the Come Follow Me manual for those who want to study and understand the scriptures in a framework of equality, social justice, and sisterhood. Obviously, with a mission like that, we had to bring them on, so I will turn the mic over to them for a moment so they can introduce themselves. Channing and Elise, tell the people, or at least our audience, a little bit about yourselves.
1: So I'm Channing. I am a poet and writer and amateur theologian. So I just really enjoy talking about the scriptures and talking about religion and feminism. So I'm really excited to be here. (laughs) And I'm Elise. I also love studying the scriptures,
2: especially with a feminist lens. We're glad to be invited on your episode. We appreciate the work you do, and we're so glad that we're a part of it. Outside of the podcast, I teach communication courses at Arizona State University and enjoy what I do.
0: Awesome. Thank you for sharing. I'm James. I'm mostly just here for timekeeping and jokes, (laughs) but I also love theology. I'm a lifelong member of the church. I've checked just about every box off when it comes to church membership, except for marriage. And I'm just glad to be doing this work of liberation and recognizing marginalized people using the gospel lens. I'm just here because that's one of my passions. And for the Listeners who
3: don't know me, my name is Derek Knox. I have a background as a biblical scholar and theologian. I'm also a comedian, or pretend to be. No, lies. <laughs> well, just wait. One day I will be famous. <laughs> Not um, for jokes. And my pronouns, are, <laughs> my pronouns are he and him. And I just love talking about the scriptures and engaging with issues of social justice
0: in the text. All right so we done did all the introductions i think guys we have a lot to discuss today and probably not a lot of time to do it in so let's say you guys that we jump straight into well at least what's the first section on our show which is the news where we just discuss more or less what's happening in our world today particularly with the church derek i know you had a couple of things you wanted to bring up what you want to talk about today
3: Yeah, so we had a major Supreme Court ruling on Monday, and I think this is big. It's probably the most, I think, the most important victory in the LGBT movement in the history of the United States. A lot of people focus on marriage equality in 2015, but to me this is bigger, in part because basically every LGBT adult needs to have a job. Not everyone needs to be married, and there are workarounds for marriage when it's not available obviously i'm in support of marriage equality but it's much more primary that we as lgbt individuals have income and have a job that you just can't survive in our culture without it and in fact to me this is personal because in my life people might not even believe this they don't believe this when i say it but i have lost a job twice in my life because of my orientation and people say, well, that doesn't happen. Yes, it happened to me, not in the state of Massachusetts, but in another state that didn't have protections for LGBT people. So for me personally, this ruling is more important than marriage equality so far in my life. One of the things I wanna ask the, the three of you is, how do you feel about the fact that the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints filed an amicus brief on the side that wanted to deny me these rights?
2: I think this is one of the moments where the church, the church's mission or the gospel and what the church does for policy and action don't align. And it's really disappointing because what an amazing opportunity to get behind something that we hold up to be true, which is loving and welcoming all people and making sure that they have the means to live a good life. And I think the gospel is about finding ways to live life well. And it's unfortunate, no, it's more than unfortunate. It's just incredibly disappointing and discouraging that the church had the opportunity and has had opportunities to support this group of people and continues to not do so.
3: And it's especially peculiar because we as a people in this country have had persecution against us. Legalized discrimination against Latter-day Saints was, is part of our narrative. Why would we want to do to others what was done to us?
0: Mm -hmm. We've said many times on this show that uh, we should be the first people on the front lines when it comes to people who are not experiencing justice, not experiencing equality, when not only does our theology demand that we do so. But so does our history. We know what it's like to not experience these freedoms or to not have our rights respected. And the gospel of Jesus Christ demands that we ensure that other people have these things. So it just seems that every time we do this show, every time we talk about what's going on in the world, we always come back to the same point that our history and our theology as Latter-day Saints should be one of the first things that motivates us to be on the front lines of making sure that these things don't happen.
2: Yeah. And the theology that we're all children of God doesn't just mean that we're all children of God in really nice, nice ways, but that we are children of God, which means that we all deserve justice and equality and things that allow us to step into our full being.
0: Definitely. We'll flip those tables if it's necessary to show love for other people. It's more than just being kind or being nice. It's it's being disruptive when necessary as well. And I think that part doesn't get said enough.
3: And I think our theology is much more radical than other Christians on this issue because when we think about our eternal destiny, our divine potential, our, our amazing divine origin and our heritage as children of God, that should change how we see
0: ourselves and how we see every single person on this planet. Absolutely. Okay. If nobody has any additional thoughts for that, there were two other things that happened in the news this week that might be worth bringing up. They're fairly recent. I admit I haven't had all that much time to think about these two things, but they are worth bringing up in case anybody does have something to say. The Enzyme for the month of July came out with a handful of art. It has a handful of articles in there that seem to deal with a lot with people who are struggling with their faith or who have lost their way and left the church or whatever and i just wondered if anybody had any thoughts about why there seemed to be such a focus on this particular issue and how you felt about the articles that were written any immediate thoughts on that
1: yeah i have something so part of me thinks that the reason why these topics are coming up in this month's issue of the Enzyme are because later in the Come Follow Me readings, we come across Korihor, who we understand culturally and doctrinally to be a symbol of the Antichrist. And so I do find it fascinating that the church kind of took this avenue of of maybe trying to preemptively discuss issues that might be modern day relevant to the people of the church. And my first reaction to reading some of these articles was kind of a mixed bag. Part of me was happy that the church was addressing these concerns that a lot of the members are having. And further, I felt like it's a little bit too little, too late. I read through some of those articles, too, and
2: there's one article that— basically talks about how we have questions and how sometimes that leads us away from the church but the last section of the article said but the church is stronger than ever it's been said that people are leaving the church in droves but that's not true we are having more people join and it felt like this really performative uh kind of Something that was tacked on to the end of the article to say, don't be fooled, the church is actually amazing, and these questions and the doubts that you're having, we recognize them, but just keep holding on in faith, and the church is growing. It was weird.
0: Fair assessment. (laughs) Derek, you got anything?
3: Yeah, I think the fact that they published five or six articles addressing faith crisis or questions or church history— means that they know, I mean, they have like sociologists and and people with PhDs Mm -hmm. studying all of this and studying the dynamics of membership. And they know that there's a a challenge. And I think they're addressing it in the best way that they can within the constraints of the bureaucracy.
0: Mm.
3: And I think, like you said, there's a mixed bag. The elements where they addressed people on how to uh, talk to their loved ones who have challenges, those were better. They were t- they were basically, you know, don't preach at them, just be patient with them, don't try to zap them with a testimony thing that will magically get them back. It was just no, like just be with them and, and love them and and don't bother them. That was good. Mm-hmm. I think the things that were directed to people with questions themselves seemed more, of a quick fix or a a diversion than solving the actual problem. The church, unfortunately, needs to do some introspection about why people are leaving, and it's not because they're bad, it's because we haven't done the work to make this uh, a safe, responsible, healthy environment for people. And we've lost a lot of people because we didn't do what we needed to do to have a solid church narrative that doesn't fall apart with the merest introspection around history or doctrine.
0: It feels like during this time of pandemic that perhaps almost the church doesn't feel like we've adequately prepared people to stand on their own two feet, as it were like after two months of not going to church, people might be tempted to not come back uh, because that church is more of a social thing to some people than it is an actual spiritual foundation or an actual spiritual need that people have. I've always been curious as to why people who claim to leave the church over social issues, they don't end up joining another Christian Mm -hmm. faith that is demonstrably anti-racist or demonstrably queer affirming. And I wonder if that has anything to do with how much we don't condition our members to really wrestle with issues of history, issues of faith, issues of doctrine. And that's the way that our theology has been meant to be grappled with. I'm reading Joanna Brooks's book on Mormonism and white supremacy right now and she talks a lot in the opening uh, chapters about how theology isn't supposed to be so individualistic and how it's not supposed to preserve our innocence as individuals or as a collective body. It's how we've been able to distance ourselves so much from the suffering that yeah. we've caused to LGB- members of the LGBTQ community and in that particular context members of the black community. I, I don't want to get too much into it But our inability to really condition our members to engage the theology this way is going to make their testimonies or make their foundations very brittle if they ever have to seriously consider the implications of the troubling aspects of our history or our teachings on the lives of actual people. I I think a lot about why i don't see more people that look like me in church but uh, you know what i'm actually going to discuss this more when we get to the come follow me so i'll taper this thought for now but i just wanted to put that into the ether while we were talking about this particular thing anybody else got any thoughts to share about uh, the july enzyme
1: i just really appreciated what you said james about how the church doesn't really prepare its members to really wrestle. I think part of that, something that I've noticed is that the church focuses more on members feeling good and about being comforted every time they come to church. I know, in my experience of teaching gospel doctrine, a lot of people want to come to church and leave a lesson feeling warm fuzzies and
0: <laughs> your face um, when you said that, feeling just now. better
1: about themselves, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. And but really, what church is about is about community, and well, that's how I feel. And community, in and of itself, isn't always comfortable because we all come from different backgrounds. We all come from different inner belief systems and Mm -hmm. so when we're trying to figure that out together it's uncomfortable and it's supposed Mm -hmm. to be and and, i mean even if you look at the ministry of christ he didn't come to make people feel good about themselves say that yes ma'am yes (laughs) ma'am and imagine that at least in my experience the
2: church has not been the safe place where i can come and join my community and bring my questions and my doubts in fact it's been the opposite church has been the place where i feel the most pressure to perform and show and tell that my testimony looks this certain way and that my experience is this certain way and I have not found my Sunday church experience to be welcoming in the type of community that I hope would hold me and make space for me no matter what's no matter the stage of my faith
3: and I just want to add one more thing One more thing. I mean, sorry, I'm probably going to say that 10 times this episode. I'm counting. But one thing to to name is, well, you can delete these later if you don't like them. (laughs) (laughs) One thing to name is the historical factors that went into the creation of our church. It's a product of the Second Great Awakening, which really was a celebration of the subjective, a revivalistic thing that really geared people up emotionally. And that's their primary way of connecting and repenting both individually and in community and i don't think we have ever fully assimilated the intellectual components of what a strong christianity would be we've done some of that you know seeking out of the the best books and our educational institutions and joseph himself tried to get as much academic knowledge as he could later in life but we have never really gotten away from the fact that we are a group that really privileges the internal emotions, the feelings,
0: and so forth. Definitely. Before we transition, we just want you guys to know your boys at Beyond the Block are proud members of the Dialogue Podcast Network, a collective of independent, interesting podcasts who promote thoughtful, respectful, and engaging inquiry and discussion of all aspects of the LDS tradition, thought, arts, and culture. Find out more at lyceum.fm or dialoguejournal.com podcastnetwork podcast network. That's dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. Okay, moving right into the come follow me. Derek, do you have any context of the historical or theological variety that you want to put on these chapters we're about to read?
3: So one of the most important things to do is identify the literary genre of a text that can really help us engage that text sensitively and responsibly. If you don't know what kind of literature you're reading, you can really misunderstand what it's doing. And for me, In Alma 17 to 22, the most prevalent genre we have is the hero narrative. And a hero narrative is a story that narrates the character and adventures of a protagonist who is, one, some kind of representative or personification of their people, and two, usually largely exaggerated or idealized or having special skills, power, or insight. And uh, unlike in other literature, In the Bible and the Book of Mormon, we have a really good gift. The heroes are never completely idealized, except for Christ, of course. And this realism and vulnerability means that these heroes are never a complete model or example for their people. And there's a lot we can learn. And so the two heroes that I really see in this section of Alma are Abish and Ammon, and we'll get into that and how these hero narratives are constructed and what they do
0: for us as readers. Okay, Derek, go ahead with uh, chapter 17.
3: So I'm gonna start out with Alma 17, verse 11. And the Lord said unto them also, go forth among the Lamanites thy brethren and establish my word. So here, the Lord redefines the family from the Nephite standard. Those who were enemies and of a different tribe and religion are now reaffirmed by the Lord as brethren in the Lord's instruction to the sons of Mosiah before they go out. Now, I suspect this impacts their later missionary presentation. Essentially, the first thing that Ammon teaches Lamoni is that man in the beginning was created after the image of God. That's in Alma 18, verse 34. And Aaron began from the creation of Adam reading the scriptures unto the king, how God created man after his own image. That's Alma 22, verse 12. So we see that in both of these discourses, we find the genre of epic narrative. Each of these two missionaries is narrating the grand story of the Nephites, summarizing and relating it to outsiders. Usually, um, an epic usually recapitulates what a whole culture names about itself and its identity. And epics are usually marked by expansiveness and grandness as they retell the foundation story of a nation. And that's why I think these two stories were so powerful in converting people and bringing them to an understanding. So now Mormon as the editor necessarily has to abbreviate both Ammon's and Aaron's retelling of the Nephite epic history. But what's really important then is what Mormon retains. He retains the whole starting point of their epic history that all peoples are one family descended from Adam and Eve, and all are created after the image of God." This missionary approach explicitly presumes that all nations are in the image of God, and all genders are in the image of God too, and we see this later especially in the characterization of Abish, who is both a Lamanite and a woman. And you know, Mormon occasionally includes editorial intrusions to the narrative with more lessons he wants us to draw. So, after Ammon and Abish succeed in bringing the royal house to faith in Christ, Mormon comments, and this is so beautiful. And thus the work of the Lord did commence among the Lamanites. Thus the Lord did begin to pour out his spirit upon them. And we see that his arm is extended to all people who will repent and believe on his name. That's Alma 19, verse 36.
2: I'm glad that you brought up these verses about the Lord making it really clear that the Lamanites are the Nephites. Family. I think that Ammon comes to know this, but kind of around midway through the chapter in verses like 23 and 29, he seems committed to making these people or to try and understand these people as his full family. He says, I'm committed to spend the rest of my days with you even until I die. And I think that that's a really... Or, I hope that that's a sincere way of trying to build relationship with these people. And yet, I'm still a little suspicious of if Ammon feels that truly in his heart. Because there are other verses, like when the flocks get scattered, when Ammon sees the people are really distraught, Ammon says, Oh my gosh, this is the perfect moment I've been waiting for. I'm going to capitalize on this event so that I can preach the gospel to them. And so, there's this tension for me in Ammon's story where he. I want to believe that he's sincere in his desire to live and be a part of this community and yet i still see him moving with some ulterior motives but i'm hopeful that the lord and his relationship with king limoni opens his heart up to a full reconciliation with these people as family
3: one of the challenging things is figuring out to what extent Ammon is engaging in a colonial project versus an authentic encounter respectfully with another culture. And I don't know. Mor- Mormon is obviously narrating this to be a good thing. We have to read between the lines and figure out exactly like you said what's going on.
2: But there is something lovely that can happen when when you do allow yourself to be so overcome with service and appreciation and love for a people that even if you have ulterior motives, perhaps those things can start to shed away from you as you truly start to see these people as your family and not as a project.
3: This is consistent with what I said earlier about the hero narratives in the Bible and the Book of Mormon aren't sanitized. We get all the raw vulnerability of their mistakes, and they're not perfect examples. But one thing that I'm going to go in and talk about Ammon and Lamoni a little bit. I'm going to read from Alma 17. This is verses 20 through 25. I'm just going to paraphrase here so the king asked Ammon like do you want to stay here and Ammon said yes I want to dwell among you perhaps until the day I die and I love this it says King Lamoni was much pleased with Ammon and caused that his bands should be loosed and that he would that Ammon should take one of his daughters to wife and get this this is really interesting very interesting detail but Ammon said unto him nay but I will be thy servant and so Ammon became a servant to King Lamoni. And I find it intriguing that technically Ammon rejects a heterosexual relationship one of Lamoni's, with one of Lamoni's daughters in favor of some kind of chosen closeness with King Lamoni. And reciprocally, Lamoni himself was much pleased in some sense with Ammon at first sight. Now, I should say that I don't think Mormon is narrating this account as a sexually active relationship between the two. The evidence is not there. However, queer love, for me at least, isn't primarily about sex anyway. And I love that there's an unusual tenderness and intimacy between Ammon and Limoni. It's marked as very different than other relationships in the Book of Mormon. And even if it's not a sexual relationship, it dethrones the heterosexual norm as the only way unrelated people can form a bonded, loving relationship in the Book of Mormon. Chosen family is real, and as we see later, it changes the whole course of history. Also, I'm not aware of any other time in the Book of Mormon where two individual, non-related men are said to, quote, love one another, as we see in Alma 20, verse 26. And, you know, because of this love, They were loyal and protective of one another. And I find that unprecedented. You know, these divisions around being of a different military or tribal or religious background, a lot of those divisions are bridged by people falling in love. And I'm wondering if that's what's happening here. And after all, Ammon and Lamoni form a covenant together. You know, we talk a lot about covenants in our tradition, but we don't ever look at the queer covenants or the ones that could be queer in the scriptures. But here they form a covenant in Alma 18, verse 21. And this is just like David and Jonathan did in First Samuel 18. So you should go and look that up yourself, any of the listeners. It says that Jonathan loved David as his own soul. And uh, then Jonathan and David made a covenant because he loved him ease of even as his own soul. It's just their souls were knit together. And this was really a political and military alliance for David and Jonathan. But anyway, let's get back to how this is similar to Ammon and Lamoni. So later, Lamoni's father wanted to kill him for his commitment to Ammon. That's in Alma 20 verse 16. Just like Jonathan's father Saul wanted to kill him for his commitment to David. Jonathan is the son of King Saul And Jonathan was supposed to inherit the throne, but gives it up for his beloved David. Now, this is extremely culturally transgressive. You are denying your throne, your connection to your own father, in order to join with David. And I feel this explains why Saul feels such disgrace and anger at his son's shameful choices. And that's why Saul wants to kill Jonathan. And I ask myself, how many queer kids have faced this same awful anger, even though these details are different? And, um, you know, Ammon and Lamoni's relationship was transgressive, at least in the sense that Lamoni's trust and affection for an enemy outranked his commitment to his own people and his own father. How can that be explained except through some type of love, some type of powerful overwhelming intimacy? And on the other hand, we have, in the other direction, Ammon being prepared to abandon his Nephite home for the rest of his life, just to join himself in a special way to Lamoni's household. And in the end, Ammon's love for Lamoni is, literally, his, explicitly in the text, his motivation to save Lamoni's life. Get this, not only did Ammon choose Lamoni over a heterosexual relationship with one of the daughters, Amon also cho- chose Lamoni over the offer of wealth, riches, and half the kingdom. What straight dude would choose boys over toys? <laughs> but that's exactly what Amon did. But at that moment, all Ammon cared about was saving the life of the one he loved. Anyone who has known the depth of being in love can relate to that. And this love is precisely what astonished Lamoni's father. It's more than the everyday love between friends. It's not just love. It's great love, explicitly in the text. And when he, Lamoni, saw that Ammon had no desire to destroy him, and when he also saw the great love he had for his son, Lamoni, he was astonished exceedingly. Not only that, but I found some other parallels between David and Ammon. Both are very prominent hero stories. Now David fought off the Philistines using a sling the way Ammon fought off those who would steal Lamoni's flocks. And also Ammon cut off arms and brought them to the king. And David cut off foreskins of the Philistines and brought them to the king. So I find some very interesting parallels here. And we know from Jacob and Second Nephi that the Nephites had access to some detailed accounts of David's life. So I'm wondering if this narrative is intentionally framed as an echo of the love between David and Jonathan.
2: One thing that comes to mind is that when we're looking at a system like patriarchy, there are, there's a very specific set of rules that teach men how to be in relationships with other men. And it doesn't look like this great love It's reassuring and courageous to look at Ammon and Lamoni and see that they have chosen being in relationship with each other over being in relationship with the system of of patriarchy and power. That they have chosen love over toys or, or control or great wealth. That's no small thing.
1: I think that this is an excellent story to follow up from some of the themes that we saw in last week's Come Follow Me readings. Last week, specifically on our podcast, we talked about masculinity and how it can often turn toxic because the rules of masculinity and patriarchy basically say that men can't be in relationship or that the type of relationship that they can be in usually is pretty violent. And so it's exciting to me to see stories in scripture that explicitly mention men loving one another, because outside of really a missionary companionship, you don't really get any other kind of relationship between two men in scripture. And so one that explicitly mentions love for me is really exciting because it offers, I, I wouldn't, I don't know if I should say like permission or, Maybe example is a better way to say it. It offers an example of what a loving relationship between two men looks like. And it's exciting that it's right there in Scripture.
0: This is actually going to segue pretty well into what I have to say about uh, chapter 18 in particular, because this relationship highlights something very interesting uh, about their relationship, because both of them at different times in the story, take on identities of privileged individuals and of marginalized individuals. And this is something we don't often see, even though we kind of just saw it in the last couple of weeks with Amulek and Alma. This is yet another example of how people are expected, having taken on themselves the yoke of Christ, are expected to shed their privilege or to share their privilege in whatever way they can for for the kingdom of God. And I kind of want to point that out here in uh, chapter 18, by first highlighting something that Ammon does for Lamoni, so this is very interesting. In chapter 18, verses 24 through about 28 or something, Ammon begins to speak with boldness to King Lamoni and asks, "Believest thou that there is a God?" And then Lamoni says something like this. In, this whole exchange here is very interesting to me. Lamoni says, "I don't know what that means," and then Ammon does something. Interesting. He says believest thou there's a great spirit. Lamoni says yes, and then Ammon says this is God It's a very short and simple exchange, but there is a beauty to what Ammon is doing. He is taking something unfamiliar and he's making it familiar using the vocabulary of those he is ministering to. He is meeting Lamoni where he is and building a bridge whereby God may be accessible. And he continues to do this throughout the exchange. He says next, Believest thou that this great spirit, who is God, created all things which are in heaven and in the earth? This has to be placed in the proper context, though. Ammon, prior to explaining God and expounding the scriptures to Lamoni, he built a rapport with Lamoni through service. And you already talked about this at some length, Derek. And right before teaching Lamoni, this is where Lamoni is in privilege and Ammon is in the margins. He wants to make sure that he's being heard. Right before teaching Lamoni, Lamoni asks him, to tell him the power by which he was able to defend his flocks. But Ammon still felt to ask Lamoni to hearken unto his words. The word hearken, it implies that there is more than hearing somebody going on. It implies an act of listening, a careful attention to. It implies perhaps even an intent To act upon the words that are being heard. Ammon doesn't want to waste his breath. That's what I'm getting out of that particular exchange. He wants this conversation to go somewhere. He wants it to be fruitful. He is asking for the king to take him seriously. At this point, King Lamoni has the power of the institution on his side as the king. And the land they reside in. Ammon has the power of God. Even though Ammon has faith in the promises of God to deliver him. He also understands that that doesn't give him permission to be reckless. So consequently, I can see both my privileged identities and my marginalized identity in both of these characters. Ammon, as a person without institutional power, he wants to make sure that he's going to be heard when he speaks. And that's something that I can relate to as someone who doesn't appreciate when people engage me in bad faith when it comes to racial issues. That's not going to be energy well spent. Like Ammon, I would ideally build rapport with members of the privileged class before I talk to them and then make sure I know that they will hear me before engaging in any emotional labor. For example, a few years back, I neglected to do the latter when a friend of a former mission companion engaged in some pretty racist behavior. I took issue with it. I said as much. And then my mission companion asked me to explain why I was offended. And I should have seen this for what it was about to be, but I didn't. And my dumb self, I decided to explain myself because I thought we were boys. And then he just dismissed me. And I haven't spoken to him since. And on the flip side, I can also see myself in Limoni because there's a language and behavior by those in ecclesiastical authority that either intentionally or unintentionally excludes entire groups of people who are making the Word of God inaccessible or the Church of God itself inhospitable? I, I think we've had a great example of that these last two or three weeks. We've been seeing that when the leaders of the church have refused to use language that explicitly condemns white supremacy and police brutality, and it makes black people feel unseen and unsafe and have to fight harder to be seen and to feel safe at church. This failure of the church to explicitly name the evils affecting black people in the midst of one of the greatest manifestations of the racial tension in our nation, it's a symptom of the church's current race problem and commitment and or subjugation to white supremacy. It's, it's why you don't see more black people at church, despite the gospel of Jesus Christ, as I said earlier, being for the marginalized, despite black Americans ranking highest, statistically speaking, for spirituality. The church is simply not meeting black folks where they are, like Ammon did for, for Lamoni.
3: Yeah, I'm so glad that you named all of those things, because there's a real incarnational pattern to what... Ammon did. He went to live and dwell among the Lamanites, just like Jesus dwelt among us. You know, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And not only that, mm-hmm. but in their dialogue, Ammon reaches Lamoni on his level and talks in language that he can understand. And when the language wasn't right, he fixed it to something that would be intelligible. And I think that's something that our leaders can do. let exactly. figure out, okay, this language that we thought makes sense to us doesn't make sense to other people, so we need to use language that will actually have the impact that it needs to have. And we see this with with the word racism. That may not be the best word for certain people because they don't recognize their own racism, so you have to use a different word, just like um, Ammon did with King Lamoni. So I'm glad that you you brought these out, and I just wanna name that this could be one of the greatest examples in the Book of Mormon of flirt to convert. (laughs)
0: That. Uh. that was good. No, it wasn't. Don't give him that. Yeah. A
1: plus on that one. <laughs> I also want to comment to that too. I think the church has something to learn from both the examples of Ammon and King Lamoni. in that King Limoni held a position of power and privilege in his own community and chose to transgress, just like you said, transgress the cultural beliefs and traditions of the time by choosing to stand by Ammon. And I think that that's an example that the church as a system can also learn from because effectually what King Limoni does by this action is converts an entire people to the Lord. And I feel like what we're kind of seeing right now is a divide, a pretty strong divide in the church, where the church is unwilling to speak to the experience of its more marginalized members because it's afraid of transgressing those cultural beliefs and expectations of retaining what it believes are its more mainstream or conservative members. But what it could learn, the church is a system, what it could learn from King Lamoni's example is that actually by choosing to side with the most marginalized members in its community, it actually ends up converting the entire community closer to Christ. And so I think that the church can learn from both examples, both as like a missionary effort, but also as a system of power.
0: You got any thoughts, Elise?
1: nothing to add that was really good
0: cool then uh let's get to what i feel is one of the main events of the of this narrative which is the which is found in chapter 19 and as far as i understand channing and elise uh, i believe you guys have a lot to say about this so let's let's dive in let's do it
1: perfect elise do you want to kind of give the background for yeah A-ish? sure so this is These are important chapters,
2: not just because we're a feminist podcast, but because everyone can learn from women's experiences. But in the Book of Mormon, named women and women in general are pretty excluded from the narrative that's being told. And so when we come to women who are named and who speak to each other and have a really large role to play in the overall story... This is not something that we should miss. Then we should spend time unpacking what's happening here and seeing how we can learn from these other characters that are different from Ammon and King Lamoni because they have their own backgrounds and their own baggage that they're bringing to the story to help us learn. And women's stories in the scriptures or their lack of stories in the scriptures reveal not just something about the historical time period, but... It shapes how we interpret what we consider to be true, how we understand God, and how we make meaning out of our sacred text. And for feminist readers or women or for people who find the Book of Mormon not an incredibly inclusive place, these perspectives are helpful because they do extend the hand and the invitation to a different type of interpretation for the text.
1: Yeah, so we're especially excited about this story of We just call her Queen Lamoni, but the Queen and Abish because this, I really feel like their relationship really mirrors really well what Ammon and King Lamoni's relationship are. And that's a really close love and friendship. And so essentially what happens in this chapter with Abish is after Ammon preaches to the king and to all of the people in the king's court. They all they all fall asleep. So Abish sees this as an opportunity to bring her whole community in um, so they can witness what she believes is a miracle. And so she goes out to her community, calls them all in, everyone's arriving in the palace, and the community starts arguing about what has actually happened here. They argue about whether Ammon is God whether Ammon is a monster. Come to punish them, whether he's a messenger sent by God, whether he killed these people. It's there's a lot of speculation going on among the people. And as this speculation is happening, Abish kind of is like, wait, this isn't the experience that I was hoping for. Like I I wanted everyone to ha- have this amazing conversion experience, but that's not what's happening. And so in the midst of all of this confusion and chaos, Abish goes to the queen who the text mentions that the queen is Abish's mistress, that she's a servant in her household. She goes to the queen and raises her up by the hand. When Queen Lamoni is revived, she basically just gives a really short testimony, and she says in verse 29, "'O blessed Jesus, who has saved me from an awful hell. O blessed God, have mercy on this people.'" And when she had said this, she clasped her hands, being filled with joy, speaking many words which were not understood. And then when she had done this, she took the king Lamoni by the hand, and behold, he arose and stood upon his feet. The story is like a type or a type scene, which means that they are archetypally significant, that they play a role within a story that is holds a similar pattern to other historical accounts or other stories in mythology that are significant and what abish and queen the are are type 4 is actually a christ type where they are able to revive or resurrect mm-hmm. someone from either a spiritual or a physical death and this idea that they're an archetype of christ comes from an article called nephite feminism revealed it was written by the christensen in 1998 and we find this just really fascinating that we get to see in the Book of Mormon an example of a woman playing a very prominent role because for the most part, just like Ely said, we don't get that very often. There's, I think there's only three women that are named in the entire Book of Mormon, and the rest are either just mentioned in like groups of flocks and herds and other property. And so to see two of them together and talking to each other is really exciting. And then additionally, on top of that, to see them as a Christ type is very significant, especially for the feminist reader.
2: And looking at Abish too, we know a couple of things about her. Not only is she a woman, which places her on a certain type of margin, but she's also a servant. And in the text, she's labeled as Lamanitish, like and I don't really know what that means. But to me, it sounds like you're not like not fully Lamanite, but like ish.
0: New show, <laughs> Lamanite-ish.
2: <laughs> it just suggests, and that's the same characterization that's used for the group of servants that Ammon goes out to, to herd sheep with. And so we don't know much about her. But we, what we do know about her is that She's a part of multiple marginalized groups and one thing that is significant here aside from them being Christ figures is that Abish she's situated in a way where she has a lot of work to do because she has to go back and forth between her t- going house to house between the people that she's in community with and being this person in the palace and that's what happens with marginalized groups is that they have to be able to navigate this world in different and perhaps more cognizant ways than people who are in positions of power because they have to live in both the marginalized communities and know how to act correctly in shutter quotes in the what's the opposite of marginalized centered community
0: privileged Privileged
2: communities Mm -hmm. and so this means that abish she has to move between her marginalized community and the privileged community and she has to know how to she has to know how to do both of those things really well and that's a different type of work than is placed on people who are privileged. And going back to Derek's point about this being like the hero's journey or the the narrative of the hero, we find it interesting that Abish here is a is a type of hero, but it's different than the than Ammon as a hero. And one of the things that is characteristics of is characteristic of a hero's journey is often that the hero will use the community to reach a certain goal. Whereas we see Abish actually trying to bring the community together and working within the community, rallying them, bringing them to the palace to in order to build a stronger community, especially a faith community. And so their stories are both heroic, but they're heroic in different ways that we find involve a different understanding of what it means to be in community.
1: And going along with that, something else that we find pretty significant about this story, too, is I don't know if you guys are familiar with the Bechdel Test. Yes, I am. Yeah. So for any listeners that are not, the Bechdel Test is a feminist, I, I don't want to say like a feminist te- test, but it kind of is. The Bechdel Test basically is a stand—a feminist standard for movies and movies either pass or do not pass the Bechdel test. And there's a couple of stipulations that require, that are required for these movies to pass. So the stipulations commonly are that there are more than two women, that they talk to each other, and that they talk to each other about something other than a man. And we were really excited to come across a story in scripture that actually passes the Bechdel test, because this really doesn't happen very often. In fact, once we had this realization, I kind of thought about all of the different women in the scriptures, not even just in the Book of Mormon, but in all of the text. And I really can't think of any others except for the conversation between Mary and Martha. <laughs> and so it's exciting to come across this in scripture where two women are able to talk to each other and have an actual friendship that's based on a an experience of conversion nonetheless, which is a really powerful relationship bond to have in a friendship.
3: Yeah. I just want to to name for listeners that, that might not be aware is that the Bechdel test actually comes out of the queer experience in the In the feminist world in the 1980s, Alison Bechdel really brought this out because of everything was so focused among men. Then there were two lesbian characters in a cartoon that they actually talked to one another about, oh, I don't see movies unless they're, uh, it's got two women that talk to each other about something other than a man. And I think there's something powerful about that.
1: I didn't know that. That's so cool.
3: (laughs) That... Yeah, I can send you a reference later. And I think there's something to be explored about the relations. Just like you said, there must have been some type of relationship between the queen and Abish because Abish felt comfortable taking her by the hand, right? And she also felt comfortable going out into the community. Like she bridged both of these worlds. And there's something about this intimacy. And and I can think of a few examples in the Bible where you have some extensive conversations between two women. One would be Ruth, Naomi, and Orpah in, yep. in the first chapters of Ruth. They're, they're not talking about a man. And then there's also the, the long discourse between Elizabeth and Mary in mm-hmm. Luke chapter 1, where they, they celebrate one another. And I think both of those have an intimacy there that's really reflected here as well. We don't get as much detail, but there must have been some type of intimacy between these two women, that that made this whole thing possible. And I love the incarnationality of it too, that Abish went out into the people and reached them and and did what was needful, both taking the Queen Lamona by the hand and reaching out to the people. And it's this reaching out to the one that transforms the whole community that is probably one of the most Christ-like things about what Abish did. Did I just mansplain the Bechdel test to some feminist I'm sorry.
1: (laughs) No, you did great. No, it was totally, totally perfect. Mansplaining only counts when we already know what you're talking about. So if you're teaching us something new, then great.
0: (laughs) Oh, okay. I learned something new today.
2: (laughs) And I also appreciate the intimacy that you highlighted between Abish and Queen Lamoni. And there's a risk involved because often the depictions of female friendship that we see, it's kind of over a power struggle, like we can't totally trust our female friends because we're all supposed to be competing with each other and we are, I don't know, competing for a limited piece of a pie or something. But with Abish and Queen Lamoni, both of them are taking a risk in hopes that it leads to something different and more intimate and a type of friendship that maybe they haven't experienced before. For Abish, she has this secret conversion that she's kept to herself, but now she has to be brave enough and trust another woman enough to share it with her by extending her hand and raising her from this spiritual death. And for Queen Lamoni, she's experiencing a whole different type of faith transition and conversion, and she has to navigate her position of power with the person that has extended a hand to her. And there is, there is both risk and trust in this raising up from spiritual death and raising up into a different type of friendship than we've seen before.
1: I feel like a relationship that's defined by risk and by vulnerability is a really good pathway out of patriarchy because patriarchy essentially asks people, like all people, all genders, all orientations to cut off a part of themselves to participate within the system. And so to see, to, I mean, I'm excited about this story because the parallels between Queen Lamoni and Abish and between King Lamoni and Ammon are so similar. What we see in these relationships is that all of these people in this friendship or relationship bring their full selves. And they don't have to do any kind of like cutting off or dismembering or leaving parts of themselves out of a relationship. To be able to be whole in a friendship and in a relationship is a pathway out of patriarchy. And so it's exciting to see these kind of relationships exemplified in the text, both in a masculine and a feminine aspect.
3: You know, I have a question now. So in our culture, it seems like the way we do our correlated stuff, our curriculum, our way of teaching the scriptures, we expect women to look at all the men in scripture as models or examples or something to learn from. But we don't teach our men to look at the women in scripture as examples. We also don't have women speaking to men in the priesthood session. Like, what can we do to realize that women in the scriptures aren't just for women? They're for everybody. Mm
2: -hmm. Yeah, great, that's such a good question. And I think it goes back to what we were talking about earlier about uh, marginalized groups having to navigate both the, their marginalized spaces and the privileged spaces spaces that they move within, and that's what women in the scriptures have have had to do. They have had to not only find themselves in the women that are named, but they also have to take all of the men's experiences on as something that should apply to themselves themselves. But the men's experience when they read, I would assume that when they read about women's stories in the Book of Mormon they're separated from themselves. That's a that's a woman's experience that is unlike, unlike mine. Men identify with Ammon, women should Id- identify with Abish, where women, in order to make sense and meaning out of the Book of Mormon, we have to try and identify and empathize with all of the characters' experience. And you're absolutely right. That's not the case for men because, I, I don't know, is it like this fear of... Femininity—is it a fear of femininity that somehow will put their masculinity at risk, or maybe the whole the rest of the Book of Mormon simply caters to a man's experience, and so it's easy to kind of think that Queen Limoni and Abish are just good stories? But let's get on to the rest of the narrative,
1: right? As if they're an exception to the narrative instead of like real life participants of it. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
3: You know, I'm curious to what extent, and this is probably a lar- larger research project, to what extent do we see Ammon or Lamoni or Abish or Queen Lamoni, to what extent do they transgress gender roles? And we probably don't even know much about the gender roles in in Nephite or Lamanite society. I recall that the the an article that you cited earlier talks a little bit about this in that, well, the Bible... Does prescribe women's roles. It talks about what wives and mothers should do, and but the Book of Mormon never has a text addressing women's roles, and I think that's really interesting. In some ways, there's a liberatory aspect there, but there also that leads us to the question of what they must have had some type of roles and and did did Lamoni's Queen, and Abish, did they transgress gender roles in some way? Um, I'm wondering if, if you have anything to say about that or whether that's a longer research project.
1: I have a few thoughts to share. One, in that same article that we mentioned, the Christensen article, that we can make some connection and correlation between biblical gender roles and Book of Mormon gender roles because Lehi and his family came from Jerusalem. And so the traditions then would make sense, at least some of them and some of the gender roles would be carried over. And also, even if we just look at the government structure at the time, it was a patriarchal structure where there were, there was a king and kings are in power. And we can also see from the structure of the text that it's a patriarchal text So when we see that women's voices aren't being centered or even featured, when we see that women aren't really being named in the text, and then if we also look at the experiences of women in the text, and as we've studied the Book of Mormon thus far, we don't really get a lot of positive ones. If we look at Jacob 4, we see that the women are being abused and forgotten, are being put in like polygamous marriages. If we look at the culture in King Noah's time, the same things are happening. Women are often murdered, are like the primary victims of war. If we just look at some of the clues that are left in the text, I think it would be a safe assumption to say that gender roles for women at that time look pretty similar to what we would expect, like to what we would see from women's gender roles looking like in other periods of history as well. And so for Queen Lamoni, like the question is if Queen Lamoni and Abish transgressed gender roles at that time, I think the answer is yes. in that they took some initiative to lead a community that Abish, I mean, Abish definitely transgressed a role from her position as a servant in the household, I assume by taking a leadership type of role. And so those are just my guesses because there's not a lot of research that's been done at this point. A best guess is all I can really give.
0: (laughs) I'll take it.
2: I would also be interested to know if as both as both Derek and James, when you read this story of Queen Lamoni and Abish, how do you understand it? Do you see yourself, do you see yourselves as these characters or do they feel quite separate from your experience with this story?
0: I will say I definitely have to do more work to see myself there simply because I haven't been conditioned to. I forget which one of you already acknowledged Mm -hmm. this, but this story of Abish and uh, Queen Lamoni already felt like a side quest Like I was conditioned to treat it like a side quest growing up because it's just so short and we don't spend any amount of time really lifting up the fact that this is one of the few times we have in the sacred text, a woman, one being named and any part of her story being highlighted. So I will say that I've had to work to, to see myself in that text, but it's not a hard thing for me to do when I actually take the time to focus on it because Abish as a marginalized person, as a person without privilege, as a person who's socially transgressing roles in a conventional society that is more than likely patriarchal, that is something a lot of people can relate to if they merely take the time to just, you know, look at the thing. (laughs) Like, it's right there. It's always been there. But again, for me as a member of the church and, you know, certainly as a male too, I haven't been conditioned to look at this story as anything more than, uh, for lack of a better term, phrase a side quest
2: yeah and that's such a good point because I think that is the traditional reading that Abish and Queen Lamoni are simply pieces in the larger Am- like Ammon story they're just working so that Ammon can get back to his mission because we do hear more about Ammon's quest but after this small isolated event or seemingly small and isolated event we don't hear anything more about Queen Lamoni and Abish And if we don't take time to try and imagine what the rest of their stories might be, to try and fill in the gaps, then it becomes very easy to see it as a side quest that is only serving to further Ammon's quest.
3: Right. Well, I guess I'm cheating because I I've been for a while studying the scriptures with a feminist lens, and I have learned to look at the women in scriptures as a model for my faith. In fact, most of my models of faith in the scripture are women. Like I love the Syrophoenician woman's faith. I love Mary, the mother of Jesus. Both of them actually gave pushback to Jesus. I think they're one of some of the few Mm -hmm. characters in the Gospels that give Jesus pushback and Jesus actually accepts their demands. And for me as a queer person in the church that does not fully embrace all of who i am i have to have that type of faith the the ability to have faithful loving pushback to religious leaders and i also love esther her coming out story that i mean there's just so many stories in scripture i love the women in the exodus story how they take initiative and how i have to to do things like that i i really love the women in, in scripture i mean i've t- i've told <laughs> i've told uh i said this one time in gospel doctrine that I love looking for women in scripture, which is so unlike my, my dating life. So <laughs> but that, yeah, that's the place where I really look for women is in the, in the scriptures. And there's a lot that, mm-hmm. that we can learn because, be, because of their positionality and because of, of what they go through. And it's, of course, not, the exa- not at all the same as a gay male experience, but there's things I can learn over right. the shoulder likening the scriptures unto myself.
1: Yeah, we've had some interesting. Mm-hmm. I think a, a question you asked earlier is, "What can we do to better appreciate and understand some of the women's stories in text?" And I think one of them is just like you said, shifting our focus and our lens when we do come to sacred texts. We had a really interesting. Elise and I used to be in the same ward, and we had a really interesting experience once where we had a lesson that focused really heavily on Lot in the Bible, but never, ever hardly mentioned Lot's wife. And if it did, it was in a really negative sense. And we, what I ended up doing was writing a blog post about how women's stories in the scriptures matter. And one of the men who teach gospel doctrine in that ward came across that blog post, and in his next lesson made a special effort to focus on more of the women's stories in the text and for me and for a lot of women in that room that experience of having a woman's story featured in the class was something i had never experienced as a woman in my life and i think i was 26 at the time and so being able to have an experience where someone of my gender was valued and spent time with was incredibly transformative and did make a space for me in a community that I felt like I had to so often translate my own experience onto. And so I think, yeah, just to answer that question, what can we do? I think it's just a slow and careful re-evaluation of what our values are. It's valuing women's stories in the scriptures. It's valuing women's conference talks when they do speak. And it's valuing women's contributions to the church. And so there's a lot of things that we can do, but coming to the text with a feminist lens for me has been the most empowering.
3: Yeah, I, I'm so glad that you said that because so much of it is the perspective that we bring to the text or bring to the sources. And But I think there's and here's another one of my great faith heroes is Eve and i really think that the temple narrative sets us up to follow eve's example and not adam like mm-hmm. we're not supposed to be adam we're supposed to make ourselves into eve because mm-hmm. adam's the one that was real fundamentalist and I'm like well, i'm not going to i just can't do that I've, i'm so rigid in my <laughs> thinking and eve's like nope we got to do what we got to do and ha- and prioritize the commandments, which is what we as queer people have to do too. We have to figure out what is needful and what is necessary and what is the real goal. And she was able to prioritize the family and staying together and and mortality. She chose mortality. And Eve is, is the model for all of us, I think. And it's just a matter of how you look at it. Some people wouldn't notice that. But when you come at it... uh. From a a lens that notices the women, then you realize that women are central in how we should understand everything and absolutely examples of faith and persistence and endurance and knowing what's going on. So thank you so much for bringing that out. Thank
2: you. And I think with, not to spend too much more time here, but I think that as we engage in practices, not only of bringing our own lived experience to the text, but as we look for those who are marginalized within the text and try and recenter them, or think about the people who are not even named in the text, who are the people that are missing. In these ways, our interpretations can provide alternatives to systems of oppression and privilege and domination. And it's a, it's an imaginative work, but it's an important work. And it means that these interpretations not only illuminate the domination and systems of privilege and oppression, but they also highlight new possibilities for a more radically welcoming, inclusive, and loving society and help to deepen our understanding of God.
0: Wow. Yeah. And we could spend a lot of time talking about this, but that's a a great place to uh, end for that particular conversation. So let's uh, go ahead and transition into this end of show stuff real quick. Before we do, though... The last thing we got to let y'all know is that Dialogue, a journal of Mormon thought is proud to offer two new podcast features. The first is Dialogue Heritage, which traces the history of the journal over the last 50 plus years to situate it in LDS history more generally. The second is Dialogue Book Report, which has discussion, reviews, and interviews about current LDS fiction, nonfiction, and memoirs, so you can stay up to date on the latest releases. Listen to these new shows and the Dialogue lecture series by subscribing on iTunes, on lyceum.fm, or at dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. That's dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. Brother Derek Knox, where can people find us?
3: Well, you can find us at beyondtheblockpodcast.com, or you can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram.
0: Yes. Oh, and speaking of social media, something I neglected to do last week, your boys at Beyond the Block, we're looking for a social media intern. If you happen to know anyone or you yourself would be interested in helping our social media pages be more than self-promotion and stolen memes, we would love to hear from you. Please send us an email at beyondtheblockpodcast at gmail.com. That's beyondtheblockpodcast at gmail.com. Also, another thing that we're working on in an effort to sustain the the show and also improve it in various ways to further the mission of Beyond the Block to make Mormonism accessible to everyone. We launched a glow page about a a month ago where if you are willing and able, you can throw a couple of shekels our way in the form of random in the form of monthly contributions or a one-time contribution those who contribute anything get access to all the benefits of being in collaboration with us including access to our collaborator Facebook group where you can interact with us more directly provide feedback and ideas for the show You can get access to our show and study notes And a, a lot more You can learn about our plans and stuff for the future And if you if you don't have any coins to throw it our way You can just share our Glow page on your social media platforms And you can still join our collaborator group And reap all the benefits uh, therein We have officially I'm excited to announce that we have officially covered Our startup costs and our monthly costs And we're now shifting our focus to uh, to bigger goals Uh, bigger goals that we are still forming as it were but if you're part of the collaborator group you can see what we are thinking about doing in the future and some of those things we'd like to do more of including bonus episodes and having people work on the show as uh, editors and whatnot so that we can just have a better product and uh, and also in that spirit we want to thank our new newest collaborators uh Dan Call, Sarah Garf, Russell Holtgren, Katherine McDonald, Rosalind Eaves, Kayla Jackson, Marilyn Cole's Ritchie, Carol Laws, and Sandra Ziegler. There's a few more of y'all that I couldn't track down because y'all either haven't joined our Facebook collaborator group yet or your identity wasn't immediately discernible by your email addresses or you had an AOL account, whoever you are by the way. Hats off to you, like you still have an AOL count in the year 2020 on Al Gore's internet. Like, oh. respect, big time. And, you're, and your screen name doesn't even have numbers in it. So you've been on the internet a long time. I'm genuinely impressed. And finally, we'd like to thank our friends, Tamara Kemsley for editing the show, and also David Doyle for editing our, cha- editing our transcripts. Channing and Elise, do you have any socials that you'd like to drop?
1: Yes. So anyone who's interested in giving us a follow, you can find us on Instagram at The Faithful Feminist. And if you also are interested in following the podcast, we're on all of the major podcasting sites, iTunes, Google Podcasts, and Spotify, plus a whole bunch of others, and you can find us there. Yes, we're also at just www.thefaithfulfeminist.com. And that's where we keep all of our show notes and any additional resources or information that we happen to have time to create.
0: (laughs) Awesome. All right. Is there anything else for for, uh, you, sisters? Anything else you want to let the people know?
2: No, we just want to say big thanks to you guys at Beyond the Block for inviting us and collaborating on this episode. Oh, maybe not collaborating. For just, (laughs) for inviting us to be on this episode and we appreciate the fact that you're willing to share it with our listeners and we hope to work with you more in the future.
3: Yeah,
0: this was great. this was a lot of fun. I'm really glad we did this and it was a real treat for me personally. Again, just speaking for myself, but like this this was an amazing thing to do. It's always great to meet other people who are in essence doing the work that we're doing And uh, using their platforms for good and making this a more accessible, more hospitable uh, place for all of us so that the mission of Christ can really go forth in the way that it's intended to. So, thank you guys for the work you're doing and thank you for joining us here. Thank (laughs) you.
2: Yeah, thank you so much.
0: And we'll see all of you next week. Thank you, our listeners, for joining us.